I'm turning this morning to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21, and we'll be looking at just two verses this morning, verses 12 and 13. And our subject will simply be the house of prayer. The house of prayer, Matthew 21, verses 13, or verses 12 and 13, rather, I'm sorry, verses 12 and 13. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. It's easy to casually pass over this event. Uh, it's familiar to many. The familiar, familiarity of Jesus' cleansing of the temple and to not think very deeply about it. Some people have just simply reserved it for Jesus has just lost his temper. Uh, Jesus has had a moment of weakness and he's lost it and that certainly is not the case at all. Jesus at no point sinned nor did he react in a way that was contrary to his nature as God. So we have to get beyond the reality that this is not an act of Jesus simply losing control or losing the ability to control his anger. Uh, this passage reveals very deeply about the character of who Jesus really is, and we should consider it from that perspective. Uh, what does his actions in this temple tell us about his character? Now, you'll recall that last week we dealt with the triumphant entry as Jesus came into town and uh, they were shouting Hosanna in the highest, uh, which we looked at that word Hosanna, which means to save now. And they believed, many that were lining those streets believed that Jesus was coming to set up his earthly kingdom right then where he was going to establish a throne. He was going to overthrow the Romans and all was going to be right with the world, uh, of course, in the eyes of the Jews. Well, that certainly was not the case. But immediately upon this, Jesus enters into this temple, this temple of God. And we see that Matthew refers to it as the temple of God. Now, we, we've got a little bit of history of this temple. Uh, originally, the temple in Jerusalem was built by David's son, Solomon. And as a result, sometimes it was referred to as Solomon's temple. Uh, you'll know your Bible history. You'll know that that temple was destroyed by, by the Babylonians around 586 B.C., and when the temple was rebuilt, uh, it was uh, rebuilt and referred to by other names. Uh, but this temple uh, had stood for more than 500 years until a man by the name of Herod the Great began to dismantle it. And it was in preparation for a new temple. And of course, that's, that's a, another message for another day. But I want us to consider this temple that was standing was also known as Herod's temple. Now that's what makes this pretty significant. Matthew calls it the temple of God. The culture would have said, this is Herod's temple. And I think that very clearly says, this is God's, this is not Herod's. And so there's a great significance to Matthew using that particular title, the temple of God. Really what verses 12 and 13 really boil down to is a definition and a defilement and then also a defense, uh, intentionally alliterated this morning, of the house of prayer. 
I hope it'll help us to kind of keep these thoughts uh, in order this morning. You'll notice that as Jesus goes into the temple, uh, now each of these temples and all the temples throughout history had a purpose. And that temple was built first and foremost to be a sanctuary and the symbolic dwelling place for God. It was to be his house among the people. The the temple was built for the honor and for the glory of God. It was not built so that they would have, the man would have a nice place to come and to sit and to fellowship and to have all the good things that we enjoy as a church. It was meant to be the dwelling place of God and it was meant to be a place where true worship was to occur. Now, because God was at the forefront of the one who should be honored and the one who should be glorified for worship, for adoration, for sacrifice, for praise, and of course, for prayer. So it's a temple, this temple that Jesus goes into. Now, you'll notice that immediately there's an action that takes place. He goes into the temple. It doesn't say he came in and he preached a sermon. It doesn't say he came in and prayed. It doesn't say he came in and worshiped. It said he cast out all them that notice this is very important here in a couple minutes that sold and bought. He doesn't just cast out sellers. He casts out buyers. Now that's going to be a really key thought when we get really to the emphasis and what this text is teaching us. So he enters into this temple. Now, a couple things, and again, I want to just make sure we establish, we can get in our mind's eye what's happening here. To enter into the temple doesn't necessarily mean, in most cases doesn't, into the actual holy place where most of the worship was taking place. Jesus is entering into the temple by passing what was known as a courtyard and a series of courts that was often uh, led into by a massive gate. And so this massive gate would lead into a series of smaller courts. There would be various things that would be there. But one of the very outermost courts was what was known as the court of the Gentiles. Now, so he's not even actually in the temple, kind of like he's not actually, we're not in this chapel right now. He's, he's not inside the place where the worship, it's, it's, in, it's in the vicinity, it's near to that he encounters something. He encounters people. He encounters people exchanging. They're described as money changers. Now it's a word we don't use in our American society. You've probably never used that word in your life unless it's been in the, uh, in the arena of a, a message of, something, of some sort like this. But a money changer was a person who was exchanging currency. They were exchanging currency and they were selling animals. What in the world? Why is there a currency exchange and why are there animals in the temple courtyard? And what in the reason, what is the reason why, first of all, why is this activity happening? What's the purpose of it? Is it just random or is there a reason? What are they doing there? And secondly, what is it about this that makes Jesus immediately, without saying a word, says he overthrows the tables of the money changers and overthrew and of the seats of them that sold doves. So now we have money changers and we have people who are also selling doves. Again, is it because there's a hot market for doves? 
Is there a reason why doves are being sold? There's an, there's an exact purpose as to why doves are being sold there, but we're gonna understand why this has caused Jesus to do what he has done. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Remember, he's been on this pilgrimage, this journey heading towards the cross. Uh, this is the final time he's coming to Jerusalem. This is the final time because he is ultimately going to be crucified and he's going to fulfill redemption for his people. So when Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, the city had begun what is known as the week-long celebration of the Passover. Now, sometimes it's not inspired, uh, but we can get a lot of information from a Jewish historian named Josephus. He's quoted by so many commentaries and commentators and by preachers, and he tells us that this event, this Passover, literally drew millions, okay, not thousands, millions of people from all over the Roman provinces. And they were coming in for a reason. They were coming in for a purpose. They were celebrating this annual feast. Now, Jerusalem was not like coming into the city of Columbus, for example, or coming into Cincinnati. Jerusalem would have been overrun if you had a million people come into that town at that, at that time. But yet, that's what's happening. Millions of people are coming into this town. And as you might already guess, to come into this town, these foreign bodies, or these foreign people rather, would come in and they would need to exchange their currency. It's not much unlike what you do now. If you go to another area, another country, you'll have to exchange your currency because your, your money's of no value, uh, unless it's a, a country with a common uh, currency. So they would exchange their currency, but not just so that they'd have spending money, but so that they were able to meet a tax. We talked about this all the way back in Matthew 17, the half shekel temple tax. So the money changers were there for a purpose. They were there to meet the need of those who need to exchange their currency in order to meet the half shekel temple tax. They were serving a purpose. In addition, those that are coming to Jerusalem for the Passover were also in need of animal sacrifices. Now, again, this is hard for, us to, hard for us to get our minds around because if we needed to take an animal from one place to the next, we would just load up our truck, load up our trailer, put the animal on there, we'd just drive right into town, find a parking place, have our sacrifice right there. Well, they didn't have that ability. It was very cumbersome for them to bring a sacrificial lamb or to bring any type of sacrifice for the burnt offering. So what they would do is they would wait until they got to Jerusalem and they would purchase the animal there. Now, many that brought the sheep or many that came to town would buy the sheep. Okay, now, again, not to get too far off on this, the sheep were a little bit pricier. The doves were there for those who didn't quite have the resources to buy the sheep. So they would purchase the doves. Hence why you have people selling doves as well. Now that's key about what's happening here. So you see they are serving a purpose. They're in the out court, outward court of the Gentiles. And Jesus finds the men, the money changers, exchanging currency and also providing burnt offerings or burnt sacrifices. Now this picture we have happening here. Okay, I'm trying not to get too deep into this, this exchange, this purchase, these religious ceremonies. 
I want you to keep in mind that it, it started with a good purpose in view. Okay, it started with serving a real need. And it's not unlike many things, especially in the church of God today, that start off with a good purpose. It has a reason. It has, this is something that is needed. And that's, that's what happens here. It was a service for those who were traveling great distances, those who were poor, who could not meet or fulfill their obligations of this temple tax. But what is much like our society today, what began as something legitimate and good had become a means and a way to exploit people. To take advantage of them. To take advantage of people who could not meet those obligations and not only as a means of exploiting, but also to extort money and, frankly, to steal. Now, this may or may not interest you, and if it, if it does, that's okay. It helped me. But just to give you an example of what it was like in that day. In order for one of these travelers to take the money that they had and to exchange it, okay, here's what it started to happen. They had to pay a 6% rate of exchange. So basically, they had to pay a 6% difference just to exchange. Now, what else it had turned into is that if you came and you did not have, think about this now, you didn't have the right change, then you had to pay another 6% to resolve the problem. So now you're at 12%, you have to just to resolve the issue. I don't have the right money to exchange, I don't have the right amount, so I gotta resolve the problem. That's what the money changers were doing. Then there were the price of the animals. Now, one of the historians or one of the commentators spoke, to, I, I can't remember which one it was, but he said, based upon the historical documents that they have uncovered and the things they've heard, they said that the cost of an animal or even a dove for the poor people inside the temple was 50 times higher than out on the street. So they were extorting people and they were, they were, they were, pay, they were charging people more than what it was actually worth. Now, again, that's why Jesus speaks about this, turning this place into a den of thieves. Um, everybody in this room would squawk at that. I mean, if we go to the, we go to the store and pay too much for something, we'd be like, I'm not paying that, right? But this was extortion because the temple tax had to be paid. They had to pay it. They didn't have the means to do it, so they were extorting from them. Now, again, when Jesus comes into this particular temple, he comes into the temple, rather, again, this is not Jesus suddenly losing control. Um, I've seen dramatic depictions of this and again people try to get into the head of what Jesus must have been thinking and the problem with that is is we we put our humanity into this what would I have done how would I have responded to this if I knew I was being uh, taken advantage of if I was Jesus which of course we're not how would I have responded you would have responded in human sin most likely that's what we would have done. I know we, we like to say this. When I responded to that brother or sister in Christ, I responded in righteous indignation. Well, if you have to tell me it was righteous indignation, it probably wasn't. If you have to tell me, look, my anger towards you is righteous. Well, that's convenient, right? It's our humanity. Now, righteous indignation is being, it is being moved or angered or upset by that which is contrary to God, not what just rubs you the wrong way, right? There are things that rub us the wrong way, and we say, well, I'm just righteously indignant at them. You probably don't use that terminology, but that's the point, right? This is not Jesus losing control. This is Jesus 
defending the Father's house. Now, everything he and the Father did was as one. Jesus is seeing what's taking place here as a defilement. Okay, so we see the house of prayer being defined. We see what's happening. We know what's understanding. So what is the defilement that's happening? Well, Jesus sees that the temple's function, which is supposed to be what? My house shall be called the house of prayer. At this point, this has been completely set aside and it has now been defiled. Now, we say it often here, and of course, this is not um, our tradition, but it's in the Reformed tradition that we think about the significance of a church building. And we have been taught the significance is this is a structure where we gather. There is no holiness in the walls. There's nothing that makes this place any more sacred than if we sat out on lawn chairs in the side yard. It's not the building. But the building, it does matter what that building is being used for. It does make a difference. And it is to be a house of prayer. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It is a place, of course, where we come to hear the word of God today. That's the primary reason why you should be here today, is to hear the word of God. But it's also a place that Jesus calls it the house of prayer. Now, we could look at it and he could say, was he getting a greater emphasis on prayer than he was preaching? I don't necessarily think that's what he was saying, but what he was identifying is this is a place that is not to be defiled. But he says, you or ye have made it a den of thieves. So what does Jesus saw? Well, what did he see? Well, what we talked about, he saw the extortion. He saw the thievery. He saw that God's house was being used for things that it should not have been used for. He drove out now again, look, look carefully at this, who bought and sold. Now, you could easily say, who were the guilty ones here? The sellers or the buyers? He drove them all out. Sellers and buyers. Sometimes we read through this and we think about it. Well, yeah, he got, he got angry. He got mad at the people who were selling. and He drove them all out. No, he said he bought those who bought and sold. He overturned the tables of money changers, the seats of those who sold doves. One of the other Gospels, John makes mention that when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money, overthrew the tables. He made a, what's the equivalent of a whip of cords. It looks like a guy who's lost it. But yet, there cannot be sin in him, so his actions are not sinful actions. And yet, he literally drove out not only the merchants, but he drove out those who were buying. You can see the picture. Everything in what appeared to be absolute chaos, knocking over the tables and the chairs, the people who were changing money, things scattered everywhere. Here in the middle of it all is Jesus, who is God, who is in accordance with his Father, doing what he needed to do, which was to continually keep the house of God from defilement. What's this tell us about the character of Jesus? 
Well, we know one thing for sure. His anger was truly holy wrath. Which means that we are not in a position to question it. Now that's going to be very important as we get to the close today. His wrath, whatever he does, is not being done by uncontrolled anger, but being done in accordance with the will of the Father. Now, that, that is what will keep you from moving on to humanistic reasoning when you read the Old Testament, for example, and you say, how could a good God take action against a whole nation and actually wipe out innocent people? Well, here's the reality about who God is. There is no such thing as an innocent person. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, we might question it, that doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem right that God has carte blanche to do whatever he wants. Well, certainly he does. He's the creator. The only reason you're here is because he created you. He has right to do with his creation whatever he chooses to do. And what he does, he does in perfect holy wrath. Now, why has that message disappeared from so many churches? Because it's not a popular one. None of the church growth experts, which is a laughable title. And I can't believe people actually work and they call themselves that with a business card. You don't grow the church by gimmicks. You simply preach the word and he adds to the church. But the reality that we're looking at here and we're thinking about is that God himself has designated that which is right. That which is, and he always does that which is right. So we cannot say that what he saw, he was responding in a wrong manner or a sinful manner. If anyone ever had a right to pour out wrath, it's God. He had a right to do what he chose to do because the house of God was being defiled his father's house. Spurgeon's got a lengthy quote on this, and I broke it down just to, the, just to a few sentences. But he talks about the sellers and the buyers. And he says the sellers were the more permanently obstructive, the more constantly offensive. So they were driven out first, but as there would have been no sellers if these had not been buyers, they must be cast out also. Those who kept the tables of the money changers might have pleaded that they were there for the public convenience since they supplied shekels and other monies of the sanctuary in lieu of the Roman coin. The seats of them that sold doves seemed licensed since they dealt in young pigeons and turtle doves for the sacrifices, but these traders were not in this serving God, but making profit for themselves, and therefore our Lord overthrew all their arrangements and cleared the holy place. This might shock you, but we're not in this for profit. You ever notice we don't have like bazaars and yard sales and we're not in here trying to make money. This is to be the place where we gather now and we gather for the worship of God and to worship him properly. It's a sad day, and some of you, maybe I, maybe I won't go too far on this, when we have to even define 
in our society what this church building will or will not be used for. We have to spell it out. We have to spell it out because there are those that would want to defile it. There are those that would say, that's a building. You, you have to give us access to that. No, not for the defilement. Again, it's just a building. What he was defending here is not the structure. He's not defending the structure in itself, the, the beams and that which made it. He was defending the house of prayer. He was defending the God of the universe, the God of creation. Now you'll notice if you're, if you're very carefully paying attention, Jesus used these words one other occasion that's very prevalent is when he was dealing with the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. Verse 13 says, And he said unto them, It is written. Isn't it amazing that the authoritative God, Jesus Christ himself, quotes Scripture? He doesn't just say, This is by my authority. He says, It is written. What? He's very specific. My house shall be called the house of prayer. Okay, it's not a random thought. He's quoting Isaiah 56, 7, if you want to turn there quickly. And it's a prophecy. It's speaking in a future tense. Isaiah is. Isaiah 56, 7. It says, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer. Don't miss this last three words, for all people. You see, this was to be a place, the temple was to be, be a place where all who've sinned and come short of the glory of God might find grace. Jews, Gentiles, every walk of life, every background, no matter where you came from, these are the words of God calling the temple His house. Remember all the way back to the tabernacle in the wilderness. It was to be built according to the pattern. Moses built that first tabernacle according to the pattern. Everything in that tent, that tabernacle, had significance that pointed to Christ as the coming Messiah. The temple was no different. When, they, when David desired, remember, to build a more permanent structure, a more permanent temple, he went and he wanted to do it, and God said, you're not going to build the temple. Your son Solomon's going to build. It was a more permanent structure. But why was it, what was it declaring? It was declaring that that was to be the place where he was to be worshipped, where he was to be adored. It would signify the presence of God to his people. It shall be a house of prayer, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for all people. Now Mark, in his account, in Mark eleven seventeen, actually quotes more directly Isaiah 56, 7 than Matthew. Now it doesn't mean it's an error. We talked about this last week. Just because two don't say the exact words doesn't mean it's a contradiction. That's a straw man argument. They're not contradicting each other. They are simply just being, they're elaborating more in some of these areas. But here's what Mark says, Mark eleven seventeen, And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves, called of all nations. 
Again, a little bit different, but they have the same meaning. This was to be a place for all people to know the grace of God. Now the money changers, the sellers of doves, it was where? And that's why I spent time talking about it. It was in the court of the Gentiles. The temple primarily throughout history had been a Jewish temple. This was in the court of the Gentiles. It was where they were admitted to come and pray. They were admitted to perform the other parts of worship. And yet this house of prayer was to be used for that purpose, not simply for the buying and selling of merchandise. He says, you've made it a den of thieves. Now again, I want you to think about who's saying this. It would be one thing for you and I to walk into this place and say, you know, you've made this place a den of thieves. It certainly would not carry the weight and the authority as the Lord Jesus Christ saying it. This is a den. Now this is not a random illustration he's using. The den of thieves is speaking very directly about those who were thieves in those days and they would hide themselves out in the caves in the wilderness. But again, when he says you have made it a den of thieves, remember this is Christ speaking here, but he's also affirming a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. So turn to Jeremiah 7 and look at verses 10 and 11. So you can see Jesus, when he said, it is written, he's already quoted Isaiah about what the house of prayer was supposed to be about. Now he's writing about what Jeremiah said about the people in general. And he says in verse 10 of Jeremiah 7, And come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Notice it's a question. In this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. Now, if you know the God of the Bible, to have God say, I have seen it, and you have made the house of God, the temple of God, a house of thieves. He's applying what Jeremiah said to the present case on account of those who are wickedly selling this merchandise, unlawfully gaining, extorting, stealing, and using it for their own gain. There's a deeper meaning here. And there's a deeper thought that's coming out. Here are these under, and we talked about this at 10 o'clock, under the pretense. If you were here at 10 o'clock, you remember what the pretense is to make something appear as true. These money changers, they were not announcing to people, hey, we're here to rip you off. They were doing it under the pretense of religion. They were doing it under the pretense of providing a good service, something good. But what did Jesus see? You're thieves. You're robbers. Now remember, I said to you that God has the right to do with His creation whatever He chooses to do. Now some would say, hey, you're, you're, just, you're telling a fairy tale now. You're, 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 you're stretching. Almighty God has the right to do whatever He wants to do with this location where this church sits. As I've said to you, and one day if it's 
not me or it's a plurality of elders, whatever the case is. This, this, this church does not belong to any one of us. It's not mine. You're never going to hear me refer to this as my church. It's not mine. This is the Lord Jesus Christ church. That's why we are so very careful, even down to how we worship. That's why it's not following the contemporary fads of the day. That's why we're not giving in to all the stuff that says, look, you've got to make this a place where people want to come in. That's not what the Bible says. You preach the truth. You don't compromise and make the church look more like the world in order to get. That's what your church builders do. you got to get more people in the seats. It's never been the goal. The goal is to proclaim the truth. But if, if we became unworthy, and we're unworthy, I realize that, in and of ourselves, but read about Revelation, about the lampstands and the candlesticks, about Christ Himself putting out those churches which are given over to things that are contrary to God. For most people, church is just something that you come and do and you choose and you, you kind of do it as a smorgasbord, find the one that fits you the best and stay for a while and move on. That's not the way the Bible describes the church. That's not the way the Bible describes even church membership. Again, it's a message about membership. It's a message about what is the purpose? What was Jesus so upset about? Because there were people doing good things, religious activity, under the guise of what appeared to be something good, but underneath it was just extortion. I don't have to tell you, there's preachers all over the internet that are extorting you. And they're doing it openly. And people continue to give and give and give. Can I just say, when we read that part about, I shall see it, Christ is not oblivious to what appears to be just a pretentious show on the outside of a church over there, or maybe even us. I know what's really going on there. I know what's really happening in what should be my house of prayer. You're defiling it. You're turning it into something it was never meant to be. I will tell you, churches like this one, are, they are dying. They're a dying breed, sadly. Because everybody thinks, I know better what, how to worship God. Well, even if they're even thinking about worshiping God. It is interesting. He doesn't call them, and I don't think that they were, per se. But yet, that's exactly what the Pharisees were, right? Under the appearance of religious devotion... Jesus called them himself vipers. Clean up the outside, but the inside of the cup, filthy. Pharisees were guilty of devouring widows' houses. They would steal, rob from people, take their substance from them. Pharisees were full of extortion and excess. Jesus is doing the same thing with these money changers because on that level, they were the exact same. It's interesting, the Pharisees and the money changers were all doing it under the guise of religious devotion. Think about that just for a moment. And before we say, well, that could never happen, it happens every day. It might not be money changers, 
You don't have to come to a church now to exchange your currency. You don't have to come to a church to get a sacrificial animal. And by the way, praise God for that. And those who want to bring back the old sacrificial system, are you kidding me? Why would you bring back that which Jesus said once and for all? The blood of bulls and goats. That was just a type. That was just a picture. All's fulfilled in me. But we didn't bring a sacrifice today. As I've been telling you, there's no altar up here. These are steps. Not an altar, steps. They lead up to a platform. You're not going to hear me say, come to an altar. There's no altar up here. This isn't an altar. This is a Lord's Supper table that we observe the remembrance of his burial, his death, burial, and resurrection. But you know, you can do a lot of things under the guise of doing something spiritually good. And Jesus himself may look at it and say, you've just turned the house of prayer into a den of thieves. You know, we often don't pray that way. We don't often think about praying for us as a body of believers and pray for a church that this doesn't happen to us because we think it can't. Jesus, while he drives out those who had defiled the temple, he's defending it, but he's not defending it because he has to. He's defending it because he has the right to. When he said it is written, no matter what Jesus or who Jesus was contending with, whether it was Satan or with wicked men, he always used the word of God as the final authority. As Isaiah had penned, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. You know, I do, despite another way of an application, I hope that we truly do look at what God has blessed us with as this is a place where all people can come and hear the word of God being preached and proclaimed. And when I say all people, you folks need to understand what all people means. We don't put people at the front door to screen and say, you can't come in here because you look a certain way. Look, you ought to be begging God to bring in people who need to hear the gospel. And they may come in that front door looking a way that just you don't even know what to do. If they're here, praise God they're here to hear the gospel. We are not trying to build some religious clique that just looks perfect and has everything in order. You know, we can be angry at sin. We can be angry at the sin people are committing. But if someone who's committing those sins, God by His providential sovereign hand brings them in the front door, let them sit with you. Scoot in and say, you sit right here. I know it's so hard for us to get our minds around the reality that we're not like all other people. That we somehow, our, our sin was not as bad as that. All have sinned to come short of the glory of God. Your sin separated you from a holy God. You needed a Savior. And again, we can defile. We can turn it into what it's not supposed to be. But that prophecy, remember, that Isaiah and Jeremiah was speaking about was so specially related to the court of the Gentiles. Folks, I've told us this before. Understand that if not all of you, 99.9% .9 of you fall into that category, Gentile. You have been welcomed in to the very beloved of God himself and a partaker of this great salvation. You heard the gospel. The Spirit of God opened your eyes, opened your ears to believe the truth, and you were gloriously converted. 
You are not here because you got smart and educated and chose Christ for yourself. He chose you. Because there was nothing in you to say that person's worthy of what I'm going to give them. All are unworthy. The Gospel humbles you. It doesn't make you arrogant. It doesn't make you prideful. It humbles you to the dust because you say, God, why am I counted among the elect? Because you can't find a single reason why. Yet the joy and the beauty is the court of the Gentiles, how many millions, immeasurable numbers of people have been accepted in the beloved by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior likened this to His Father's house. You've made my Father's house a den of thieves. Again, think about what was happening here. We're not told of any account that anybody tried to stop Him from what He was doing. Nobody said, Jesus, you can't come in here and do that. The Roman authorities didn't come in and say, you can't do that. There must have been quite a sight as he's going through and he's doing what appears to be uncontrolled anger, yet what he's doing is carrying out holy wrath that he has every right to carry out when his father's house is being defiled. You realize we read about the temple guard. There was actually a guard of people that guarded the temple. The temple guard didn't bother him at all. When Jesus, and I want you to keep in mind, we're not talking about some future. One day, Jesus is going to be in power. He's already in power. You need to keep this in mind. If, if you live in this world like Jesus is just kind of waiting and hanging out on the sidelines, waiting until he gets the opportunity to be in power, you've missed it. And I don't know how you sleep at night. Jesus Christ is already ruling and the next event is He is coming and He is going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate the wheat from the tares. And He's not going to ask, is it alright if I do this? He's going to separate those that are His from those who are not. Now again, oftentimes we see this in kids' stories as a time when Jesus got angry. That's not even the point of the story. But what we do see is that it is a Jesus who is in control, a Jesus who is in power. And I want you to take heart in this today. I want you to understand this. And you may be here today and maybe you're, you're not even sure of all this salvation. And you're not sure what this all means. I want you to understand there's a Christ who's already in control and He is all-powerful. And whenever Jesus Christ, no opposition is going to be able to stand. And while we're getting all uptight about what's going on in the world and how's this all going to turn out, listen, I know it's cliched. This book already tells you how it's all going to turn out. There's nothing that happens in this world that you should be fretting over and saying, what in the world? Does God know what's happening? No, He created it. And He's given us the entire pattern of what's going to happen. What this prophecy really does unfold for us and shows us, we can't disregard the reality that this also is in direct connection to His second coming. This is not just an event where Jesus just walked into a temple and needed to do something. He's given us a picture of what it's going to be like 
when all who have defiled the name of God, all who have rejected him, all who have turned away from him, what's going to do, what it's going to be when he comes in power. Because he's not coming in meekness and he's not coming in humility and he's not coming to go on a cross again. He's coming and he is going to exert that power. You don't hear a lot of preaching about that anymore, about when Jesus comes. We're all talking about when Jesus comes and boy, what a pleasant, what a day that's going to be. Do you realize the amount of wrath and judgment that's going to be poured out when he comes again? And the question is, if you're here today, are you ready for that? And I'm not trying to emotionally manipulate you, but are you ready for Jesus coming again? We studied recently 2 Peter, where scoffers say, where's the promise of his coming? I've been going to church all my life. Preacher's been telling me he's coming again, he's coming again. He never shows up. He's not coming. He's coming as certainly as we're seated here today. And when he comes, he's not going to come with a cool drink of water and say, I'm here in humility. He's coming in wrath. But those who are in Christ, we're not fearing his wrath in that sense because our wrath his wrath towards us has been supplied in what Jesus Christ has done for us. There is therefore no more condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Say, so preacher, this is a scare tactic. You're just trying to scare me. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is just the truth. Those that belong to him, there is no condemnation. But if you are still dead in your trespasses and sins today, when he comes back, that will not be the time for you to say, now I believe, now I repent, now I call upon you to save me. That's not why he's coming the second time. I've said this many times. Hollywood has done some real damage to nominal Christianity and those who don't know their Bibles. And has created so many fictitious stories that they think that's what the Bible actually says, and it doesn't. It's an old narrative, and it's an old thing, but left behind is not the Scriptures. Please quit taking it as Scriptures. The latest movie came out. Boy, is this how it's really going to be? Why do you do that? Right here tells you how it's going to be. Let me just show you very briefly, and we'll be through. Matthew 3. These are short, this is a short passage because this shows us exactly how this pictures what Jesus is going to come to do. Matthew 3, verse 12. Let's go, let's actually, let's go back to verse 10. And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which bringeth, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Whose fan, now this fan is another word for a threshing fork. It's used to separate. Is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is not about wheat and tares. This is about those who are his and those who are not his. One will be collected into the barn. The other will be cast into the fire. Luke 3.17, same lines as what Matthew said, just kind of gives us a, another picture of this. Use a little bit different terminology. Luke 3. 
Again, speaking about John the Baptist, verse 15, as the people were in expectation and all men mused in their hearts of John. Remember, John was so closely in appearance of what he was preaching, whether he were the Christ or not. There were people in that day who believed that John the Baptist was actually Jesus the Christ. John answered, saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan, there's that word again, threshing fork is in his hand. It's a demonstration of power. He will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Jesus did come. He was speaking about him coming in his earthly ministry, but he's also talking about him coming in judgment. Never forget that the ministry of Jesus was a ministry of salvation. But in order to preach the true gospel, you cannot preach Jesus' ministry of salvation without preaching the ministry of his judgment. He will make all things right. Judgment upon this world, judgment upon the sin of this world, is not something that's going to be waiting until a point in time. It's already taking place. This world is being judged. When people say, oh, these events are just random. No, God's been pouring out judgment since the beginning of time. Now, you and I cannot determine what is an act of God's judgment, which we like to think we can. God, this happened because this is God's judgment. But I will tell you this, we do know that it is happening. But there is a final judgment to come. And that final judgment is not going to be based upon whether you were religious it's not going to be based upon whether you were baptized, whether you won a church role, whether or not you prayed. Did you repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only remedy for your salvation? There is nothing greater you need to consider today than whether or not you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, you say, well, how can I be? Understand this, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, look, I don't know what to do, cry out to God and beg Him to give you eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. And call upon Him. He has never cast anyone out who came to Him. Come to Him. Run as quickly as you can get here. Not to an altar. Not to me. Not to anybody else in this church. Run to Christ. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to hear a lot of messages. What the world wants you to believe as soon as you leave here. You won't even turn, you'll just turn the ignition on your car and you're going to hear a message. You're going to hear a message about what the world wants you to think about this God. But this is the true God of the Bible. This is not an uncontrolled God who's just recklessly allowing this world to hurtle out of control. He's fully in control. Jesus Christ is fully ruling. But one day He's coming in full judgment. You need to be prepared and ready for that. Repent. Believe the gospel of Jesus Christ.